Pastor Doug here from Crossroads. It's great to be with you. I hope that today's message will draw you closer to Jesus. I don't know if any of you have done any home renovation projects recently, uh, but most of the stories uh, that I've heard are much like mine. Things don't go exactly like you would imagine or hope. This past November, we were having some problems with our shower floor. Uh, Tiles were coming up. There was just this putrid smell. Something was not right. Uh, Took a lot of phone calls, but got somebody to come and look out. And the goal was to simply figure out the problem, repair the floor. Well, to figure out the problem, you have to do a little bit of digging. Digging revealed that it couldn't just be the floor. There was a foundational problem. Uh, So no longer is it a small uh, fix. It is now a full-fledged total deconstruction, reconstruction, rebuilding project. And uh, we were going to be without our shower for a time. And we knew that right away. Uh, And it was going to be throughout the holidays when people were coming in and staying at our house. But thankfully, we have a second shower. Uh, And the guy was up front, you know, this, I'm not going to get to this until early next year. And understood, understood. Well, here we are, February. And you know what's been done so far with my shower? Absolutely nothing, right? And that's the way it feels right now. Everything just takes more effort, more energy, more money, more whatever. And it feels like that way for so much of life as we try to rebuild the world and the life around us. But there's bad in that, right? There there clearly is bad in that. But if you found any good in that as well, in the rebuilding process, if you found some good, Uh, Because I certainly have. uh, My time with God is so much more important, so much even more foundational than it ever ever was. Uh, My time with him and my dependence on him is so much richer because fully to get anything done that takes so much more effort and energy and everything else, it's like, God, if you don't come through, if you don't break through, if you don't do uh, only what you can do, uh, it's just going to be bad. So dependence on God and intimacy with God has grown exponentially throughout this time. Now, it was last year at annual meeting Sunday, just like this, where I started using that term rebuilding. And I said, you know, it's going to be a new phase for Crossroads. We're going to go into a rebuilding phase. And we don't completely know what it's going to look like. And we don't know how long it's going to take and all the shapes and forms. But we knew some clear next steps. And if you look at my written report, we talk about some of those things we've done over the past year to help in the rebuilding process. But things haven't went completely easy. This pandemic thing didn't go completely behind us. And what I have realized... and come to embrace is that rebuilding is a journey. And the journey takes twists and turns. It doesn't always go the way that we want it to or expect or hope it does. It was much earlier in the pandemic, clear, clear back in uh, like early summer 2020. And staff was meeting. I'm like, okay, guys, we're going to do a futurist exercise. And I'm going to force all of you because I know you don't enjoy doing this kind of stuff. But I want you to give me your best guesstimate for when this is all going to be over. 
Like to when, like the pandemic will either like have like just burned itself out and disappeared. Some of us had hoped for that, right? Or when it just sort of becomes a normal part of life, just like the flu does. And it's nothing more than that. And we talked around the circle and we all made a guess. And I journaled my guesstimate because my guesstimate, and I felt really good about mine, was June 2021. You know, by then, this was all going to be behind us. Well, that didn't exactly happen, did it? And with each passing month and with each passing new variant or surge, you know, it's going to take a little bit longer and a little bit longer. But hope remains. You know, I'm still hopeful with, with the crashing numbers that are happening that we're going to get back to a newer normal, that this would be a normal part of our life. But my guesstimates have been wrong before, right? So rebuilding is a process. And so when you think about rebuilding, when you think about scripture, are, are there some stories or some things that come to your mind? Because for me, when I think about rebuilding, man, my mind goes right back to Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah, man, that entire book, it is so much about rebuilding. And let's join the story in chapter one in the very beginning in, in verse three. When Nehemiah becomes aware that something needs to happen, uh, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Now let, let's back up and give you some context. What's going on here? Nehemiah, roughly about 500 years after King David. Israel is no longer a powerful nation. It is no longer a united people. Right about 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, a ruler of the Babylonian empire, he, they come in, they march in, and man, they just bring destruction, destruction to the nation of Israel. Wipe it off the face of the earth as a superpower. And they destroy the walls and the gates. And not only that, they take so many of the people of Israel out of the country, back to the Babylonian empire. If you grew up in church, maybe some of your favorite Bible stories were uh, Daniel in the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's all happening during this time period if you never had the context for where those things were going on. But then 50 years later, 50 years after the temple had been destroyed, things had changed once again. Babylonian Empire was no longer the world's superpower. Now it was the Persian Empire and a whole new set of rulers. King Cyrus was in charge and he looked around and there were all these people in his territory, in his homeland, that didn't belong there, that didn't, you know, they were carried in from foreign lands. He's like, this is like trouble in the making. Some things need to happen. So he made an edict. And one of those was to send 50,000 of the Jewish people, 50,000 Jewish people back to their homeland, back to restart. And if you ever read the book of Ezra, that's the story of that initial 50,000 who went back to start the rebuilding process. Things started, but then they faltered and they got even worse. So now let's go back to, into the future to Nehemiah's time. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. Like, man, it's more than just tasting and drinking the king's food. He has authority. He has power. He has respect. He is the king's right-hand 
man. And that's the context for where we begin in Nehemiah. Nehemiah's brother comes and says, hey, this is what is going on. Nehemiah wasn't born in Israel, but he still considers his, his homeland. Most likely, Nehemiah had never visited his homeland, had never been Jerusalem. But he hears this devastating news, man. It is so bad. And we find out it gets even worse because it's not just about destruction. I mean, it is economic decay. The people living in the territory of Israel, man, they have had to leverage their homes, their businesses, their future crops. It's got so bad that they've had to use their wives and their kids as collateral just to be able to survive in the economic turmoil that is going on around them. It's completely chaotic. And Nehemiah hears all this about his homeland. And how does he respond? And I want to look at some of the ways he responds because how he responded is things that we can learn in the rebuilding process. Next verse, verse four. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, I fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. I sat down and and wept. And this is the heart of any leader, any man, any woman after God's own heart. When you encounter this kind of news, you sit down and you mourn and you weep. It's a step that so often we, we want to miss, don't we? We want to skip over some of these steps to rebuilding. I mean, but if you're not happy with the world around you, if the world around you doesn't look the way that you believe that God wants it to look, if relationships aren't healthy and going the way that you think that they should, if you're not happy with the state of our country or your family or your workplace or your school system or your whatever, the starting point to rebuilding is always mourning and prayer. For some of you, not all of you, but for some of you, the world around you has changed so much in the past two years. When you used to work at an office, you used to have a commute. Now when your feet leave the bed, you're at your workplace. And depending on your temperament, your personality, that might be all good or that might be all bad or a mixture of the two. But no matter what, you need to sort of mourn what is lost, what is gone, what likely doesn't look like it's going to come back for you before you can move on to your new normal. Maybe you have some family or some friends that you just don't enjoy being with as much anymore. The stress of the past two years, man, it has changed the dynamic of your relationships. See, you can mourn that before you move on and build other relationships. Maybe you're missing seeing people on a Sunday morning. You're online. They're online. They're somewhere else. You can weep and mourn that fact before you move on in the rebuilding process, before you move on to what is next. Those are all healthy things. But the key thing when you mourn, when you grieve, is you don't want to get stuck in that process. I've been talking with some of you that have lost loved ones recently. I talk about, man, that grieving process. It is a journey you need to travel. You can't skip over it. It looks different for each and every one of us. 
It's not a one-size-fits-all. And you have to travel that journey. You have to work through your grief. But you don't want to get stuck in the grieving process. You don't shortchange it. You don't skip it. But you don't get stuck in it. And Nehemiah doesn't get stuck. He moves on. He prays. He, he fasts. I mean, the foundation to a relationship with God, that, that's our prayer life, right? The way that you might often think about it is, you know, you meet somebody and you're like, well, if you never talk to someone, do you really have a relationship with that person? And prayer is foundation, our conversation, our time to be quiet with God, to give our thoughts and praise and request to him, but also to make room to hear back from him. One of my favorite questions over the past two years, and I've told you this before, is I love to get with some of you, and I just ask the question, what do you pray for when you pray for our church? What do you pray for when you pray for our church? Because boy, when you listen and lean in and you hear somebody's prayer life, you get to know a lot about that person. And if we're just moving on and we're not praying about rebuilding, if that's not our foundation, all of our efforts are in vain. And if you're looking for some different places to pray, right now you might not know this, but in between services, there, there's a prayer group that's meeting back in the fellowship hall right from 10 to 10.30. You can just lean in there. Even if you don't like to pray out loud, just gather in, just listen, just be a part of that kind of prayer gathering. And so many of you, when you say, hey, Doug, what can I do to help? What can I do to help as the church rebuilds and moves on? You'll always hear me say one of those top answers is pray. Man, the best thing you can be doing is you can be praying for us as we move forward in the rebuilding process. But look at what Nehemiah does next. Nehemiah does something that, man, this is a step that man, we love to sort of like downplay or skip or move over in the rebuilding process. He goes on and he says, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant, Moses. He mourns, he prays, and then he confesses and repents. Have you ever noticed on Sunday mornings, uh, often in the closing prayer at the end of the message, it's a bit of joint confession. Even sometimes if I'm opening up the service, it's a little bit of confession. God, you know, we've been so busy. We've taken our eyes off of you. We're carving out the space to be with you. There is something healthy about confession, about repenting. I always think the best word picture is those old Drano commercials, you know, with the clogged pipes, and then you pour in the Drano, and it opens everything up, and confession and repenting just opens up the communication channel between us and our Heavenly Father. Some of you know that my Sunday morning routine before I will enter our sanctuary is I get alone in my office in a quiet space, and I kneel down, and I just pray before God, and confess and i'm like if i don't have stuff to confess that means i'm way too busy and not self-aware enough but just to get right with god before we enter into these moments before him there's something so incredibly healthy and important in the rebuilding process to be willing to personally and corporately repent and confess as we move on 
And then what does Nehemiah do? After confessing, after repenting, he asks God for strength and favor for next steps. He needs to approach the king, but he needs to approach the king at the right time. I mean, he's going to go to the king, his boss, and he's going to ask for an extended leave of absence to go back to the home country to try to make it a good city again, to rebuild the walls and the gates. Have you learned that the approach for some conversations, man, the timing is so important? Uh, if you're married, have you learned this yet? In premarital counseling, uh, we go off on this little side conversation of, are you a morning person or are you an evening person, a night person? Because so often God puts us together with somebody that's different than us. And I, I remember, man, I, if I tried to have a conversation with Denise in the morning, it just said moron on my forehead, right? She was not a morning person. And it took me way too many years to figure that out. What is the best thing that I can do? What is my regular routine for Denise right now? I make her tea, I get her lunch out of the fridge, put an ice pack in it, and I feed the animals. It's not the best time to have any mission-critical conversations. You need to have the right approach. And Nehemiah realized that when he was going to begin the rebuilding process. It changes constantly, doesn't it? This past week, I had a horrible head cold. I was miserable. Uh, there were staff on vacation. There were staff out sick. And there were staff out with COVID. I mean, the office felt the most empty it has like since we have been in like shutdown mode. And I came into the week with all of these conversations that I wanted to have. And I realized that all of those conversations just had to wait for a later date and time because the approach and the right time is that incredibly important. And something I've realized even as we move through the rebuilding process, whether it's with you or whether it's with leadership team like church board or whether it's with staff, you need to look for the right time. I mean, for me personally, my temperament, man, I want a strategic plan. I want next steps. This is our first annual meeting that in that packet, there is no steps document because it's just not the right time. I cannot take and force next steps for us. I mean, there are questions that I would love to already have an answer to. We're just about debt-free as a church, and I'd love to have a very clear, be able to tell you what is next for Crossroads. But it's just not the right time. And there's a percentage of board, and there's a percentage of you that would love to have those conversations. But it's just not the right time. So like Nehemiah, one of the things I'm constantly praying about is, God, give me the right time for the right approach. And help me to be patient in the meantime. So what do you do? What do you do if, if your nature like mine is just to like push and work aggressively and plan aggressively ahead to rebuild? What do you do when something is key to you, but it's not key to everyone around you? You just keep praying. One of my favorite Dougisms. Uh, and usually at annual meeting, you'll have a this is us sheet, and I have some Dougisms there. But one of my favorite ones, and, and I created this 25 years ago, and I think I love it the most because most people never get this, and that's sort of fun for me. But a Dougism, something that I created 25 years ago, is I will lead with you, I will lead without you, but I will never lead against you. And simply what that means for their denomination, 
I am under spiritual authority. And you know what? I'm never going to lead against the denomination. If there are some things that I disagree with that I can't come underneath the umbrella, it is time for me to exit stage right. And this also applies to church board. I, I, there is a majority that wants to go a different direction, and it's constantly different than what I want to go. What am I going to do? I'm going to exit stage left because I am not going to lead against other people. It's a decision that I have made. So if you have some things in your life, if you're dreaming about rebuilding for our church, and maybe you know it's hard for you to be patient, or maybe it's hard for you to think about the future, one of the things you can constantly be doing is praying for the right time, wisdom to know when to have those key, those mission-critical conversations. Come on, there's some things that I have great clarity for for, for this church. I don't believe that God wants you to continue to meet in a gym for the rest of your existence. I have clarity on that. The when, don't have clarity on that at all, but I have clarity on the next steps. But that doesn't mean that any of you have clarity about those kind of things. And I'm never going to force that kind of stuff on you. Back in the mid-90s, first full-time ministry, Sarasota, Florida. Somehow this 20-year-old like guy got put in charge of a $2.5 million building campaign. And I know how much incredibly hard work it is to do those kind of things. And I know how important it is to have the entire leadership team on board and the vast majority of the congregation on board. But I also know, like Nehemiah, that those God-sized steps... They take a lot of faith, and they take a lot of people. It's a community of faith that makes those things happen, not just a few individuals. And that's exactly what Nehemiah knows about rebuilding. So he waits for the right time. He asks for the approval of the king. And man, it's a big ask, just not for time off. He wants resources. He wants timber. Uh, He wants army officers and cavalry to go back with him. And he plans and he prepares and he does a lot of hard work before the physical hard work is even talked about. He spends several weeks putting together this large entourage of people and materials and wealth. And then Nehemiah and his entourage, they they finally travel and they make it back to Jerusalem. He gathers the leaders and the people. Man, that is where the vision casting begins. Verse 17 But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. And they replied at once, yes, come on, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. And Nehemiah casts a vision for rebuilding for the walls and the gates of the city and the people of God. Man, they get on board. I mean, think about it. For decades, for decades, they've lived in the midst of ruin. They've lived in the midst of despair. And none of them have done anything about it. They needed someone to believe in them, someone to point them back to God-sized 
faith, someone to provide leadership, to rebuild what had been torn down so long ago. Don't we know this to be true, that nothing significant ever happens if somebody doesn't provide leadership to it? And see, chapter 3, chapter 3 is all about rebuilding. It's all about the huge amount of people that lean in and do their part. And we want that to be the end of the story. They rebuilt. Everything went easy. It was wonderful. Chapter 3 is great. But chapter 4? Chapter 4 is all about opposition. Let's talk about that opposition. Let's see what... Sambalot was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Did they think they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Tobiah, master of insults, takes it to another level. Tobiah, the Amorite who was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked along the top of it. And for a time in the rebuilding process, things go from bad to worse because it's just no longer opposition on the outside. It's no longer external opposition. It becomes an internal matter as well. Drop down to verse 10. Then the people of Judah, the ones who were doing the work, the people of Judah began to complain. Man, the workers are getting tired And there is so much rubble to be moved, we will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we will swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. And you can understand. You can understand if Nehemiah gets frustrated and discouraged in the rebuilding process, because don't we all at times get frustrated and discouraged in the rebuilding process? Fatigue, frustration, and fear were setting in. But Nehemiah doesn't let a few naysayers or complainers and setbacks keep the work from happening. Here's something we can learn from What's going on in opposition in the book of Nehemiah? Three types of things that are going on. There's, there's the constructionists. That's those who are actively rebuilding. They are the destructionists, those that are tearing down. Uh, they're just looking for opportunities to say, you know what, that will never work. You might as well not even try. You might as well give up. Uh, they are sometimes secretly, sometimes publicly celebrating every failure or every missteps. And then there's a group of obstructionists. They're just simply getting in the way. Sometimes on purpose, but a lot of times it's just who they are. They're like, you know what, building, let's just talk about that more. Let's just pray about that more. Let's just plan more. And they just get stuck in a cycle. Do you know anybody that's like that? Let's just pray more. Let's just talk more. But they never get around to doing anything. They're obstructionists. They get in the way. So what does Nehemiah do? What does Nehemiah do when he's confronted with opposition and fatigue and frustration and fear and the people are just 
ready to give up. He reminds the people who is really in control. He gives them the why behind the what of all they're doing, and he points them back to God. Chapter 4, verse 14. Then as I looked over the situation, I called together all the leaders, then the nobles and the rest of the people, and said to them, Don't, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fights for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And in the midst of a storm, don't we all need reminders? In the middle of the hard work and the unknowns of the future, we need to be reminded that God is in control, to fear not, to keep up the good work, to be reminded that rebuilding is worth the fight. And come on, rebuilding in the midst of a pandemic, that's unique, isn't it? I mean, the stories that I get in, and you're a part of this, the stories I get, well, you know what, this past weekend we needed to replace six people on our tech team. Uh, whether it's due to illness or whatever, and like there's only 12 people total, so have to replace 50% of our team. Today I heard the number was four, just four last minute because people were sick or whatever, have to make those kind of changes. I hear from Cindy and Children's the kind of pivots they have to make, but the great news is this, that God always provides because so many of you step up and serve on a regular basis, and so many of you step up and serve with last minute notice. In the book of Nehemiah, it continues with hard work, working from sunrise to sunset, standing guard ready for opposition, and the work of rebuilding gets completed. One, commentary, one commentator says this about the book of Nehemiah. He says, there are no miracles in this story. There is nothing supernatural. God never speaks. Angels don't show up. Lightning doesn't even flash. It's just all about heads down leadership and the providence of God and a man who just prayed like crazy. And I get that, right? But I'm like, define miracle. A king who allows his right-hand man to go for an extended leave of absence and sends resources with him. A people who have been living, you know, in economic ruin, who are willing to step up and unite around a common purpose and cause and to rebuild in the midst of opposition and adversary. To me, those things are pretty miraculous. A project that's completed in record time. If you know the story, this rebuilding of the walls and the gates gets done in less time than my shower is getting done. So thanks for being a part of the rebuilding process. And I know it's not always easy, and I know that life can constantly be changing around you. But for those of you that are just engaged with Crossroad, and man, you're in. You're worshiping, you're serving, you're connecting, you're giving, you're inviting. Man, you are a part of the rebuilding process. And I thank you for that. And I know it's not always easy. But it is so thrilling to see the way that God continues to break through and the way to see what God does in us and through us and around us. I want to close our time and be reminded of what it is that unites and drives us and brings us together. And 
you're here in person, you have maybe a communion cup at home. Maybe you were able to grab some elements. You can run and grab them right now. And speaking of things that some of us are just tired of, this is it. Uh, can I just tell you that we actively have a plan? I don't know if it's like six or seven weeks from now. We actively have a plan in place where for your comfort level, you're going to be able to figure out if you want to grab one of these or if you would like to partake with communion with a different type, a more traditional type of elements. We'll provide that to you. I look forward to that day and that time together. But for now, Jesus Christ, the Son of the ever-living God, made a way for you and I to have life in its fullest for the here and now and for all of eternity. And what unites us as Jesus is under his name that we come together. It's why we exist to complete and fulfill his mission. And we pause and we remember that ultimate sacrifice, the communion that, that reminds us of what Jesus has done for us. On the night that he was to be betrayed and then arrested and then hauled off to be tortured and crucified, gathers his disciples around the table. And he reminds them of this. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said this, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me body of Christ given for you. Let us partake together. Same night, same table. Just a little bit later, after the bread had been fully passed, and the disciples were remembering or thinking about what do these words of Jesus mean? He continues on and he says it like this. He says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup, this cup, it's a new covenant. It's a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The blood of Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice shed for you and me for the forgiveness of sins so that we can be with our Heavenly Father, have a relationship and life to its fullest in the here and now and for all of eternity. May we remember, may we give thanks. Let us partake together. Jesus, we thank you that you unite what a world wants to tear apart. We thank you for that ultimate sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins for the price and the penalty that you paid for all of us on the cross but we know and we embrace that the story doesn't end there that three days later you defeated death and you walked out of that empty tomb and a rebuilding of sorts started for the your creation where the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ could be shared and people could come to understand that ultimate love of their heavenly father and could have a very personal relationship with him because of what Jesus did. So Father, we give you thanks, we give you our praise. 
Lord, we look to you for strength in the rebuilding process, in our family, in our community, in our churches, in, in our nation. Jesus, may we continue to see the world around us through a Jesus-centered lens. May we see the beauty of your creation, the people that you so greatly love that you're willing to give your life for them. And may we be a part of sharing your love, your grace, and your forgiveness. May we be a part of spreading that good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to a hurting and broken world. In the midst of all of that, will you continue to rebuild us and do a great work in us and around us and through us? We love you, Father. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. Any step you take towards Jesus is a step in the right direction. You can find out more about us at crbic.org. That's crbic.org. Thank you.